You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to uh, introduce Mikhail Troitsky, who is professor of practice at the University of Wisconsin. So he's uh, with us uh, from Moscow, and he's uh, based in the political science department. And I mean, I've known Mikhail for quite a number of years. We met through the Ponars Network, uh, of which he is a, a member, and um, he's also a member of another uh, of a, a number of what, what's the, the, the uh, PIN, pin negotiation, negotiation yeah. network? Okay, okay. So I'm not familiar with that, but maybe you can tell us what that is. Sure, yeah. So, so uh, Mikhail uh, does work on conflicts, on international security, international relations, especially uh, in Eurasia, and especially with respect to Russian foreign policy. U.S.-Russia relations, arms control, and um, international negotiations. So he studied sort of what goes into international negotiations, what the various stakeholders' motivations and, and strategies are. And he's published his work in uh, Problems of Post-Communism and Survival, uh, Global Policy, and the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Um, so that's related to his work on nuclear arms control and so forth. Uh, and he's also published book chapters in a large number of edited volumes. Um, I want to point out he's teaching a course on Russian foreign policy in the political science department in the fall, so please spread the word, consider taking the course. If you're um, a student and you know, let people know, it should be a very exciting course. Um, and currently, uh, Mikhail is studying uh, also two interesting topics. One the use of red lines as bargaining tools. Okay, we all read all the time about this red line is crossed, this is a red line for so-and-so, such and such. But um, you know that term is casually used, but it's not really clear what it means or what role it plays in, in negotiations or in bargaining. And so Mikhail is researching that. And he's also studying Chinese approaches to international negotiations. His talk today promises to be very interesting. It's entitled, Shifting Rationality, How Identity Decay Led Russia to invade Ukraine. So please give our speaker, Mikhail Troitsky, a warm welcome. Um, I'm uh, truly honored to, to be here, and I am, uh, I am um, uh, now thinking of an appropriate way to paraphrase uh, John Kennedy. So I have, uh, I have never presented to such a distinguished group of both scholars and students with the possible exception of taking pointed questions from Mikhail Gorbachev <laughs> at a panel uh, about a decade ago. Uh, okay, so uh, uh, joke, jokes apart uh, or aside, it's indeed ethically difficult to uh, uh, discuss theoretical approaches to the war in Ukraine uh, from the uh, um, safety of our conference room uh, uh, while people are dying in, in the war every day. And we, of course, condemn the Russian aggression, but we also want to learn some lessons uh, for both practice and theory from these horrific uh, circumstances. And the events are ongoing, so it's hard to make uh, definitive uh, conclusions uh, or analytical, even analytical conjectures, but let's see what we can do. And we have a news break here. So, um, yeah. So you might have heard about elite 
you know, phone conversation. Actually, uh, the rumor has it that it was, um, uh, they were talking on WhatsApp, uh, an encrypted messenger. So their conversation was leaked, and these, these are two relatively high-flying members of the Russian um, uh, society uh, who are actually uh, calling uh, Putin names for the war uh, in Ukraine. So their conversation, uh, essentially, uh, essentially uh, the conversation between a known music producer and a wealthy businessman, uh, essentially uh, boils down uh, to the question they ask themselves, uh, how and why did we get into this and who needed this? Okay, and any Russian person listening to this, I'm sure will endorse uh, their, their question, and not only Russian uh, person. And they, th those two gentlemen blamed it uh, squarely on uh, Vladimir Putin. But the Ukraine invasion, uh, in hindsight, uh, certainly didn't uh, come out of the blue. Uh, and it was a culmination of a certain uh, process. So the problem that I will try to show, and it's of course obvious to anyone here in this room, is both broader and deeper than just Putin. And it goes back uh, a, few, a few decades. So here's the puzzle uh, that I'm trying to you know, come to terms with, and that is uh, why Russia has been consistently missing uh, opportunities to uh, benefit from reassuring the West of Russia's readiness to compromise. Uh, but instead, Russia was consistently raising the stakes in its negotiations with the United States, with Ukraine, uh, and, and many others. And, and Russia was doing that despite uh, significant uh, risks and, and, uh, and huge losses that uh, uh, it stood to uh, uh, to incur from uh, in some of the uh, scenarios of confrontation, and the war indeed showed how all those risks can materialize. Uh, it now even endangers uh, the the domestic stability of Russia's own political regime. So why not choose to benefit from sustained collaboration with the West? Uh, yeah, so that's. Uh, that's uh, or, and, and our foil here may be China. That's an easy example, of course, an easy foil. But China has been consistently reaping substantial benefits from economic cooperation with the United States and U.S. allies while keeping uh, conflicts with them under control. Now, uh, let me use a couple of um, examples uh, to illustrate what I am talking about. So the first case is negotiations between the United States and Russia <coughs> on strategic stability. And the second case is uh, a little bit ironic. This is just this whole presidency of Donald J. Uh, Trump. Uh, so for some mysterious, and what uh, unites those two uh, illustrative cases from my perspective is that Russia passed on many opportunities to gain significantly from each of those promising processes uh, or development. So we can take um, uh, strategic uh, stability uh, negotiations first. 
So since uh, late in the Cold War, Russia has been involved in negotiations on what is called strategic stability. And the, um, the beauty of strategic stability is that it can be uh, negotiated uh, short of uh, uh, formal arms control agreements. Uh, and even when arms control agreements are beyond, uh, beyond reach, you can still talk about strategic stability. And for the United States, and for, so the definition is elusive. Uh, for the United States and Russia in the early 1990s, uh, strategic stability meant doing what it takes to minimize the incentives uh, for a first nuclear strike. And later on, it became diluted by plenty of other factors that Russia and the United States considered uh, key to their, uh, to their security such as high-precision conventional weapons, uh, cyber and information warfare, some regional security issues, even regime stability, and so forth. But in any case, my point here is that Russia has been deriving <coughs> significant benefits from talking to the United States on strategic stability, both publicly uh, uh, and behind closed doors. So just in brief, uh, uh, let me just you know, outline the, the benefits. Uh, so Moscow was leveraging what we can call conversational power of nuclear weapons, right? So there's uh, more or less a consensus among scholars that nuclear weapons are good for deterrence, but are not so good for, uh, well, for compellence, uh, for getting uh, others, for prompting others to do what, what you want them to do. But there's something in between, and that we may call conversational power. Uh, when you talk about you know, nuclear weapons and strategic stability understood as the lack of incentives to actually use nuclear weapons, you get uh, a lot of good things, a lot of nice benefits. Plenty of convertible status, for example. Uh, so China was very worried about uh, Russia talking bilaterally with, um, with the United States. Uh, that was some exclusive form of engagement, of course, between Moscow and Washington. And Beijing was, was uh, concerned and willing to oblige Moscow if it could somehow separate Russia from, from the United States in that conversation. And also Russia was driving home the point that it wasn't possible to solve any global problem. Uh, a global security issue uh, without Russia. And that converted into plenty of benefits. And of course, through the strategic stability dialogue, uh, Russia also convinced uh, Washington that meddling in Russia's internal affairs uh, as a second nuclear superpower uh, was very risky. So in other words, regime security in Russia itself was uh, ensured partly through negotiations on uh, strategic uh, stability. And, uh, and of course, everyone remembers uh, after US President Biden nodded to a suggestion that Putin was a killer during an interview in the spring of 2021, a summit between Biden and Putin was organized uh, under the aegis of strategic stability, essentially. And Putin man managed to get a lot uh, out of that uh, summit that uh, uh, took place in Geneva in June 2021. So the benefits of such an engagement were indeed very high. And yet Russia was uh, making 
consistent moves that undermined its engagement with the United States on strategic stability, literally step by step. And uh, any of us, of course, can name uh, any number of such moves, but I've just listed uh, some at the time when you know Russia's apparent uh, attempt to thwart negotiations on strategic stability sort of came to a head, right? And all it uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, the crisis began once um, Russia granted asylum to Edward Snowden, and then of course the annexation of Crimea came in 2014, and then Russia deployed what I think uh, the military here called GLICM, uh, ground launch cruise missile that uh, um, uh, apparently uh, uh, contravened the uh, INF treaty, the treaty on intermediate nuclear forces, and that uh, effectively uh, brought down the whole edifice of US-Russian uh, arms control. And of course then Russia uh, later on, uh, already in the current decade, Russia began massing troops on the border with Ukraine, issued its, uh, its uh, drafts, its ultimatums in the form of draft treaties, and uh, then ended up um, invading, uh, invading Ukraine that dealt a near-death blow to strategic stability discussions and Russia's status as, uh, as the second or as a second nuclear superpower. And it's interesting that even as Russia's war in Ukraine was going on, the Biden administration quite recently said that it's still willing to discuss strategic stability with Moscow, but the Kremlin then responded by saying it was no longer interested in, in such uh, discussions. So what kind of powerful force, uh, I'm asking myself, was holding Russia back from using uh, strategic stability dialogue, from leveraging strategic stability dialogue uh, to Russia's uh, own, uh, own benefit. Okay, now, there's a second, uh, there's a second case that uh, uh, looked uh, extremely puzzling to me as events unfolded uh, a few years ago. And that is, uh, and that is uh, it's, it's more tactical, I would say, more tactical case of Russia snatching defeat out of jaws of uh, victory and making self-defeating moves. Again, because of some amazingly stubborn doctrinaire responses it was posting to the events. Uh, and it had to do with the presidency of Donald J. Trump. So Trump was willing to oblige Russia for, for some reason. And you know, again, if you uh, collect uh, existing uh, evidence, uh, memoirs, interviews with Trump, apparently he be, and, you know, someone like John Bolton, who I think would be a very authoritative source on, on Trump's thinking, uh, wrote in his memoirs that he, he never asked Trump for, uh, for the reasons of his uh, willingness to oblige Russia. So he thought there was something that Trump wouldn't be willing to discuss. But apparently Trump believed that Russia uh, did help him uh, get elected and was still able uh, retain that uh, uh, capability uh, in, in the future um, elections, or for the future elections. And it seemed to everyone, uh, at least, that Trump was doing much that Russia was, would be happy about. I mean, that's conventional wisdom, including sowing discord within NATO, abrogating uh, trade agreements in Asia Pacific, ending the Iran nuclear deal, dramatizing domestic divisions within the United States, and so forth. And, and most importantly for Russia, Trump even uh, uh, messed up the, um, the Ukraine file. 
right? The, uh, everyone remembers the first impeachment and Trump's demands for a formal investigation of Hunter Biden in Ukraine. And at that, exact, at that point, exactly in December 2019, as Trump was about to be impeached, uh, by the U.S. Congress, Tr Putin was very close to signing an agreement with uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky on the autonomy and uh, a semblance of a special status uh, for, uh, for the uh, Donbass uh, separatist uh, republics. <clears throat> Something went wrong then for Putin uh, because Zelensky uh, turned out not to be ready to sign the planned agreement when they met in, in Paris in December 2019, but Russia never even tried, the, the point, my point here is that Russia never even tried to capitalize on its influence uh, on, uh, on, on the situation, I wouldn't say on its influence on Trump, but on, on this kind of situation uh, and on the, on the policies that Trump was pursuing with regards to his allies, third parties, and, and also domestically. It sometimes seemed as if Putin was uh, trolling the, um, uh, the American institutions uh, instead of trying to troll Trump, which from my perspective uh, uh, would have been a much more sort of effective strategy, distance Putin, for, for Putin to distance himself from Trump and make other moves that would have increased deniability of the benefits that Russia uh, was getting from what Trump was doing in any case. So why was it so difficult for Russia to maximize gains from the, uh, from the Trump presidency and uh, from the strategic stability engagement, right? So we, we can try and apply um, rationalist theories of, uh, on the sources of war to, uh, to um, Russia's uh, uh, you know, decision to go to war with Ukraine. And I uh, had a hard time showing how those theories can really account for, for Russia's invasion. But uh, I, uh, I am taking a little bit of a different angle. I believe in cooperation. Uh, so I turn to rationalist theories of cooperation. And they argue that it may be uh, uh, sufficient to signal your willingness uh, to cooperate in a costly enough manner for that cooperation to actually uh, take off, right? So Russia's signals needed to be uh, costly enough if uh, Russia were to convince its counterparts that Russia was serious about cooperation and not just looking to mislead or uh, distract its, um, its uh, negotiation uh, counterparts. And as we know, such signaling between Russia and the West did work uh, uh, quite a few times, uh, beginning you know, from Gorbachev, who withdrew the Soviet troops, this textbook example of a successful signal sent by, uh, by um, Moscow to the United States. Uh, the Soviet Union withdrew troops from Eastern Europe, um, to Gelson signing uh, uh, the Star II treaty that uh, eliminated some of the elements that uh, Russia previously relied upon in its deterrent strategy, uh, and of course then to helping to scoop up nuclear weapons and materials uh, that uh, were scattered around post-Soviet Eurasia once uh, the Soviet Union broke up. Um, and then even Ukraine at that time was reassured uh, or received reassurance from Russia mm, through what is called the Budapest Memorandum of December 1994. And it is easy to see how the trend could have continued even in Putin's second decade in, in power. So uh, 
I mean, we are hypothesizing here, uh, and uh, yeah, but you know, we we had all the list. Uh, we had that list of uh, developments that uh, uh, that essentially drowned uh, uh, strategic stability negotiations and um, and uh, accounted for uh, much of the negative dynamic in U.S.-Russia relations. But can we imagine, for example, that uh, Edward Snowden? Um, was allowed to fly on to Cuba, uh, and uh, Russia uh, maintained ambiguity as to with the United States as to what uh, Russia has been or had been able to collect from Snowden, in some spirit of cooperation. Right? Why was that not a plausible option? Uh, but you know, instead, on Snowden, Putin said we couldn't have denied him asylum because he revealed U.S. secrets, uh, and and Russia could not afford. Uh, to look as collaborating with the United States on cybersecurity. Now, instead of taking Crimea uh, and annexing it, uh, Russia could attempt negotiation on the future of Ukraine with the United States. And Moscow then had plenty of leverage uh, because Ukraine did have serious cohesion problems at the time of its, uh, of its Maidan. Uh, revolution uh, in early 2014. <clears throat> now also, instead of ultimatums and uh, <clears throat> invasion uh, in 21 and 22, Russia uh, could have continued to engage with all the Western leaders who were actually uh, keen to come to Moscow, uh, right? And to uh, and they they took pride and. Uh, you know, and, and satisfaction from being able to talk to Putin as they later confess. You can read what uh, French President Macron or German Chancellor Scholz would, would say uh, uh, in, the, in the aftermath of Russia's um, invasion. And, and you know, you, you could have kept talking with them while monitoring developments in Ukraine and playing on domestic difficulties that, of course, were plenty uh, in Ukraine. So why not do that? And then with Trump, uh, I believe Moscow only needed to break out of the escalation spiral whereby Russia uh, only confirmed the worst fears of you know, the US government apparatus and the West in general, uh, uh, of fears of Moscow actually using Trump as, as a ram against the West. So do not try him helping Trump to do his job uh, of, you know, uh, to do his job that you really liked, right? Um, and that many thought was a job of undermining and subverting everything. Okay, so, and I'm not arguing that uh, any, of, any of those, uh, of those, um, uh, uh, develop any of those hypotheticals uh, uh, should be looked at as counterfactuals so that, you know, history could have easily changed its direction should, you know, any of, of this uh, 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 have happened, right? Uh, the question is why Russia was so consistent bypassing all of those opportunities. And I find it very difficult, uh, if at all possible, to prove that the costs of adversarial rather than uh, cooperative signals are calculated from a number of perspectives. You can take all sorts of perspectives and you know do hard cases and so forth, uh, that those costs would uniformly be higher than the expected benefits, so that you know it was rationally uh, uh, explicable why uh, Russia would choose uh, uh, would choose conflict and confrontation over over uh, cooperative signaling. 
Okay, so Russia did have a very special calculus, all right? And the signals uh, that may seem to have an acceptable price to us and, and uh, many others were consistently unaffordable uh, for the Kremlin and for the Russian government apparatus. So what was it that bounded uh, Russia's uh, rationality? And now my, my, uh, so, um, my best answer uh, that uh, may, that is of course subject to debate and discussion that we might have enough time to have. Uh, today my answer is that uh, Russia's rationality was bounded by the identity that Russia has been developing almost since its emergence as an independent state. Right Now I'm not going too deep into uh, theoretical discussions of identity. My working definition of identity just includes key aspects of the uh, um, uh, includes positions that the country takes on key uh, salient issues, both domestic and international, contemporary and sometimes related to history, and also vis-a-vis -vis, uh, other important actors, some significant significant others. And for Russia, significant others uh, usually uh, included the United States, uh, China, the European Union, uh, and of course Ukraine, as well as a number of um, other peer uh, regional leaders and great powers. And, so, and also while the dominant trends in the public opinion are important sources of, uh, countries, uh, of countries' identity, what matters most is the views of a country's leadership. And along those lines, state identity was defined by a scholar as concept perceived by individuals involved in foreign policy making. And he said that that is a concept uh, of what their country is and what it represents, just the working definition of identity. So evolution of Russia's identity was described by uh, many, many authors. And one of the most um, interesting studies was done by Anne Clunan, and that is an article she published in 2014. So she tracked down the moment in 1992 and 90, early 93 when uh, the Yeltsin government and his um, entourage decided to embrace the key uh, Soviet foreign policy legacies and retrench against any criticism of Russia's domestic reform on the grounds of Russia's special character. And so, and Glunin actually shows how that was a conscious choice that uh, was um, driven in part by the Russian public, by the public opinion, but made, effectively made, uh, by, the Yeltsin, uh, by the Yeltsin leadership. And uh, there were several well-known well stages of consolidation of that, um, of that identity uh, that followed uh, uh, under Yeltsin and then Putin. So you, we can talk about um, how the multipolarity uh, um, theory or multi the concept of multipolarity was uh, advanced uh, by the Russian government, effectively by the foreign policy apparatus. Uh, and then uh, it, it, uh, uh, the, the concept of multipolarity with time would morph into assertion of the quick and imminent decline of the United States uh, that Washington was um, arguably uh, determined to avert at any cost. 
Now, there was, uh, so multipolarity was not just a concept, it was a doctrine, and its doctrinal uh, part was that Russia had to um, assist and help any trend towards the decline of the West, and the United States in particular, and over the two and a half decades since the doctrine was formulated, Russia increasingly uh, positioned itself as the leader uh, of... Um, uh, of anti-US, anti-Western, and most recently anti-colonial movement, right? So anti-colonialism is in vogue in, uh, in Russia right now, and some history books are actually being rewritten to emphasize uh, anti-colonialism, uh, uh, or colonialism uh, pursued by, by the West and Russia's different character as a uh, colonial power, which is beyond, of course, the scope of this um, conversation. Now, of course, a constitutive, an important constitutive part of Russia's identity was the notion that Russian security is linked uh, uh, to uh, regime stability in post-Soviet Eurasia, so that uh, attempts at uh, uh, regime change in a neighboring post-Soviet country was part of a plan to undermine Russia's own regime. And uh, with, with time, that idea morphed into the core uh, uh, idea about the historical unity of fate between Russia and Ukraine. And, uh, and finally, there's the uh, notion that uh, uh, Russia's autocratic political regime was more resilient and that it would outlast uh, the, the decadent uh, or divided Western regimes. And we can go, um, uh, we can cover any of those uh, uh, any of those factors uh, in, in depth, but I'm just, everyone more or less uh, understands here what I'm, I'm talking about. So I'd, I'd say that those four or five <coughs> points uh, in the identity space uh, um, are enough to map or to build the equation of, of Russian identity. And identity scholars emphasize, of course, that identity really prompts specific action. Uh, however, uh, what identity formation can do uh, is change the notion of rational and increase the cost for Russia of, uh, of what others would say are reasonably priced uh, reassurance signals. Now, how did it um, actually play out? For example, you cannot talk too much uh, about uh, stability with the United States uh, with, with whom you conduct strategic stability negotiations, but you really cannot talk too much about stability with the United States if you expect the United States to decline quickly and crumble, eventually crumble. You, you cannot support U.S. positions because you look to lead the anti-colonial movement. And uh, you also cannot even mildly disagree with Trump when he talks about the decay of America's values because your own identity is built, is built on the notion of America's, uh, of America's decay, of such decay. And uh, it's hard to trace down the exact moments when identity works. So this is, of course, the crux of the matter. Can we, um, you know, can we describe how it actually worked? What's the, what's the, uh, what's the process whereby uh, this identity actually worked at uh, critical moments uh, in uh, Russia's uh, uh, decision-making? There's not enough evidence for that, but I suspect there, there indeed is. So 
my best candidate uh, for uh, a demonstration how identity uh, um, kind of for, forestalled some choices uh, that Russia or, or determined choices that Russia's uh, that Russia w- was was making at the crucial juncture in its uh, in its history and uh, and everyone's history is that uh, February 21st uh, uh, 2022 meeting of top Russian officials with Putin uh, where they discussed uh, their options in, uh, as to what to do uh, with regards to uh, you know to Ukraine and its alleged attacks against um, uh, against the uh, breakaway uh, Donbas republics, um, right? So the, the whole meeting was designed as a discussion of options, uh, and uh, um, yeah, and so uh, in that meeting, it was clear that uh, 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 that the alignment of those uh, of those uh, top officials in Russia, whom Putin would question on their views as to what to do next. Uh, the alignment with the conventional wisdom uh, by the time had already set in. So there were influential voices uh, within, uh, you know, f- among, the, uh, among the people present in that meeting who were skeptical. But they were kind of on the, on the fringes. Uh, so it was at the same time kind of a debate, but uh, it also was uh, sort of a confirmation of uh, of of the conventional wisdom uh, that uh, you know that um, America's influence is is crumbling. We can act uh, without uh, much of a cost and and uh, move ahead at that point and recognize the republics. But it was clear that you know once you recognize them, the next stage would very likely be military confrontation uh, with um, with Ukraine. So in a way, they were framed into taking that decision by the conventional wisdom that was in turn determined by this uh, long-lasting identity uh, formation, uh, formation uh, uh, project uh, process. And uh, there, there also were voices against, um, influential voices against the invasion of Ukraine that uh, uh, advocated uh, you know, diplomacy, basically, and those voices were coming from high up in the military, warning against the invasion, uh, essentially, which also shows that there was some kind of a semblance of a debate, that it wasn't sort of uh, for a forsaken decision, uh, and at the same time, it was a, a forsaken decision, given the given the, the uh, sort of the framework set by uh, Russia's, um, by Russia's, by, by the constitutive parts of Russia's identity as they had formed uh, by, by that time, right? So the path was set by the building blocks of, of the identity that no one was able to, to dispute, right? And of course, it would be great to know more about, for example, um, you know, Russian uh, uh, reactions to, uh, say, uh, CIA director Burns' meet, uh, trip to, uh, to Moscow that he described uh, already at some length and uh, that he said was uh, aimed at uh, warning the Russian leadership against invading Ukraine. So did he sort of send some kind of tremors uh, through the, the Russian bureaucracy, and did he make Putin think? So Burns' own account uh, was that uh, uh, Putin was determined by that time uh, 
that he uh, that he wanted to invade and that he was about to invade at least Burns says that was what he took away uh, from the meeting uh, now uh, there is some sort of cursory indirect evidence uh, and uh, my own experience which may serve as such indirect evidence was that you could easily criticize if you are you know a Russian commentator you, you could easily uh, criticize you know, policies uh, on the margins, but when you publicly challenge the key formative aspects of the identity, then you were in for a, um, for a blowback. Uh, and uh, this, that, so there was no way the identity uh, could be disputed, you know, already a few years uh, uh, before, uh, before the, the, the war started as the climax of that of that puzzling process of Russia always choosing confrontation over over cooperation that we you know that we try to uh, unpack uh, right uh, so the bottom line here and I'm probably about to wrap up to leave uh, more time for Mac Q&A so the bottom line here is that identity increasingly narrowed down Russia's uh, ability to send uh, uh, cooperative uh, or, or sufficiently sufficiently costly uh, signals of reassurance to the United States and its allies. Uh, and eventually, the only appropriate response that Moscow could post to U.S. actions was confrontational. So that any avenues for mutually beneficial cooperation uh, uh, were just effectively foreclosed. So, so Russia consciously chose to develop a peculiar type of a peculiar, a peculiar type of um, oppositional um, identity and then found itself trapped by the logic of appropriateness, which skewed its decisions towards greater risk-taking and dismissal of a whole class of potentially um, beneficial options, right? So uh, Russia simply could not afford uh, the, the signals that uh, I think our, you know, our examples show uh, could have resulted uh, in, uh, in, in a change dynamic uh, between Russia and the United States at many junctures including even, uh, you know, the, the current situation where, again, you know, the, the U.S. side uh, um, asked for or proposed continuation of strategic stability negotiations, and Russia said, no, we are not interested until we figure it out on the, on the battlefield, more or less. Um, and, um, yeah, so one, one takeaway uh, uh, from that uh, uh, for, you know, for the situation... Uh, with China uh, could be that um, um, well m so my candidate for the inflection point for China to now head towards confrontation with the US and this is of course this uh, the, the, the big debate now as to whether and when or when China is gonna uh, head towards uh, open confrontation uh, would be consolidation of an identity in China that would make signals of reassurance towards the US and the European Union, perhaps as well, too, too costly for sort of the Chinese political system to, to stomach. So my proposal for a future research agenda would be to formalize the impact of quantifiable aspects of identity uh, on the quantifiable cost of signals that would be required to maintain uh, a, a minimally uh, cooperative relationship between China and the United States, for example, if we talk about China-American relations. 
Okay, so nothing here uh, should be interpreted as justification for Russia's actions vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Ukraine, right? It's not that I'm trying to say, well, Putin wasn't the one who uh, just made a conscious decision. He indeed made the decision to invade, uh, and there's no justification for it. It's just a systemic, well, what I'm doing is a kind of a sy systematic attempt to answer the question asked by the... Uh, by the two uh, gentlemen um, at, um, at the beginning. You know, why Putin, but in fact, not just Putin, but Russia as a whole was doing all that those two gentlemen found so hard to explain. So thank you for your attention and I look forward to any comments and questions. <laughs>